1: Before we get into the episode, I want to let you know about two new projects. The first is the Unmistakable Q&A, a new segment that will be only available to newsletter subscribers. Each week, we'll be answering a listener question and making it available to download for the newsletter subscribers. So sign up for the newsletter at unmistakablecreative.com, and we'll send you the phone number where you can call in and ask your questions. The second is a writing project that I've mentioned before called The Compass, and you can learn more about it at instigatorscompass.com. Now, on to the show. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, Erica Dewan talks about connectional intelligence and how we can leverage knowledge, ambition, and human capital to make something meaningful in the world. Erica, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here, Shrinivas.
1: Yeah. So I came across you by way of Pam Slim, uh, one of our former guests here on The Unmistakable Creative, and she was telling me about the work that you're doing, and uh, I just was really fascinated by it. Uh, and I knew that you know there would be a lot of really interesting things to talk about. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your your journey, your story, and how that has brought you to doing the work that you're doing and what you're up to in the world today?
2: Absolutely, I love this question, and it's it's the first question I hear in all of your podcasts. Mm-hmm. I've been listening for years, Um, and it's just I always describe it as the most foundational question on anyone's connectional intelligence, which I'll talk about. But so my story, um, you know, I was the first, um, I'm the first generation Indian American. Um, My parents were Indian immigrant physicians. Um, My father grew up in a small village in India, my mother in New Delhi. Um, And like uh, typical Indian immigrants um, they had an arranged marriage they met three they married three days after they met um, and they bargained their futures on a life in the United States. Um, and a few years later, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So my life um, um, was sort of surrounded by uh, suburban Pennsylvania and summers in India. Um, so you can imagine, you know, I grew up at the convergence of many different things. Suburban um, America was, you know, filled filled with things like fast food and and you know Pittsburgh Steelers games, and then traditional Indian culture was filled with you know samosas and SAT studying and the typical things you might you might think about. Um, for a, you know, first generation Indian American in the U.S. Um, And in many ways, you know, I would describe my life, uh, my childhood as a typical Indian American. My life was completely mapped out. I was supposed to be a doctor, you know, not allowed to date until I was about to get married. (laughs) Um, And, you know, when I was 17 years old, I went to this summer program that was called Global Entrepreneurship. And my life before that was pretty much surrounded by... um, you know, Indian American doctor community and, you know, housewives, basically. And that summer experience introduced me to women and men who were using business as a tool for social change. And I sort of fell in love with business um, and what it could create in the world. I, the next year when I was 18 years old, I created this citywide young women's leadership conference connecting Pittsburgh female executives to high school women. And, you know, my family has focused mainly on careers in science. My sister, is a physician and my brother is a scientist. So I became the first to choose business and I went to Wharton's undergrad program. And it was there again that I, you know, began to see the power of sort of convergence of different things. I got really, you know, I was, you know, studying hardcore traditional business at Wharton, but I also got very involved in women's rights, um, especially having watched the challenges that Indian women face, particularly my mother, um, who faced a lot of health issues when she left her career to raise the kids. And I got really passionate about women's issues and women's leadership. And um, one of the things I did at an early age is I became a national organizer for the March for Women's Lives, a national march in D.C. with over a million people. And I was one of the 10 youth organizers. Um, And it really taught me the power of harnessing connections and communities that can come together to achieve shared purposes. Um, and I started, you know, speaking nationally on on youth leadership. Um, but at the same time, I was studying banking uh, at Wharton um, and I ended up uh, taking my first job at Lehman Brothers of all places um, after school, I said I want to go work at a sustainable business. Um, and a few years later, Lehman went bankrupt. Um, and you know the the stories and the combinations of you know from community organizing to the Indian culture to banking just helped me see an intersection of so many disparate things. Um, And from that, you know, it really allowed me after the bankruptcy to really question, you know, what I cared about most. And when I began to really... Uh, invest years of my time in was this question of really studying the challenges around what's changing among the future of work, having been on the trading floor during a crisis like Lehman Brothers, and what the next generation is really wanting and craving out of work. And that led me to a series of years at Harvard and MIT, where I really began to ask this question, and I began to develop a body of research called connectional intelligence.
1: Hmm. All right, so a lot of interesting stuff here, and you, uh, you know, having heard the show, uh, we'll, we'll know kind of you know where we're going to go with this. I want to go back quite a bit to this, but you know, one of the things that keeps coming up over and over again uh, throughout this journey of yours is the convergence of a bunch of different things and a bunch of different experiences, uh, and I, I want to talk about that uh, in uh, quite a bit more detail because I think that. For many of us, all these experiences that we have seem so random and seem so disconnected and disparate and it's just like a mishmash and sometimes you wonder, how am I gonna make sense of all of this? And I'm what I'd like to get a sense of is is, you know, how we look at sort of our career paths, our sort of journeys, our experiences and find that that convergence in the work that we're doing.
2: Yeah, so it's such an important question, Shrinivas. And you know, there's one story that I think encapsulated that for me. You know, because I was, you know, a community organizer and a banker. Um, And I remember one experience. um, It was during the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, And one of the things that I did is, you know, I had a lot. I had friends at Goldman Sachs and other firms, and I brought two Goldman Sachs bankers with me down to the protest in New York uh, to you know, not just observe, but really engage in a conversation um, with those that were uh, protesting. And what I quickly saw when I was hosting this conversation between these two different communities is that they had so much more to learn from each other than antagonize each other. And, you know, so much of um, our greatest, you know, potential is really in Finding the threads of very different things in our life that can come together Um, And that really is what led me to this body of research around connectional intelligence because in today's world you know, the idea of connections has typically been seen as, you know, tools or tech um, or LinkedIn networking. Um, But really at the most foundational level, it's connections of ideas, of people, of resources. Um, And I think, you know, in many ways, it's the most foundational uh, piece of human innovation.
1: Mm. So one of the things that is really interesting to me is you know something you said earlier about harnessing connections and communities to make change in the world uh which i think is is you know largely it seems like what you've consistently done throughout your career with each one of these things that you've worked on and you know i think everybody is making something that matters to them and anybody listening to this any, anyways. And I'm really curious how we take that whole concept of harnessing community and connections and apply it to the work that we're doing uh, in a way that leads to real change.
2: Right. Well, it's, it's the key question. Um, and I think what your question really gets to, it's such an important one, is what I would describe is the difference between collaboration and connectional intelligence. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, we're in a culture now that's very much, you know, for, in the creative world, it's very much about sharing um, and collaborating. And I think collaboration is wonderful and really important, but you can collaborate a lot and get nothing done. And so what, you know, my research is really about is how do you build this smart the smart connections, right? And that's a that's a tough thing to figure out at the beginning. But how do you begin to really map the thread um, in order to you know not just get bogged down in how many Twitter followers or how to make a video go viral, but really tap into what people's passions are and what people are, care about? Um, you know, one of the ways, one of the stories I like to tell about this is really first answering the question of. What resources do you have that others not connected to you now could use? Um, and one story I like to tell here um, that's an example of of this is um, there's a surfer named Ben Thompson and Ben, Is a surfer, but he's also an engineer. And one of the things that um, he's created is a sensor called SmartFin that surfers are now putting under their surfboard. And what this um, sensor does is it tracks the salinity acidity and temperature of water and the location of where surfers are going. Um, and today, Ben has partnered with the climate change research community um, to begin to use this as a data source um, to help climate change researcher, researchers access data that they could have never have accessed before because of where surfers are going in certain places and the amount of data they can receive. And so, you know, a lot of this starts... Um in in an unexpected way, but it mm-hmm. starts by opening yourself up to new people and ideas and making connections and partnerships that you truly care about. Ben cared about the environment, and that's what led him to achieve what he achieved.
1: Well, obviously, that one you know strikes a chord with me personally, as you can imagine.
2: Of course, absolutely.
1: So, you know, I wanna go back to, to one other thing. I mean, you know, you brought up growing up Indian and, and sort of having this, you know, path sort of mapped out before you, something I can absolutely relate to. And you had the the courage to ditch the map. And I think a lot of people, uh, regardless of where they're at in life, it takes them a long time to ditch the map. And I wanna talk about sort of the, the psychological challenges of ditching the map, dealing with, you know, that aspect of life emotionally, um, and, and, you know, navigating the uncertainty that comes with that.
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, the word that I think was the, the most important, um, Word that I needed to get really comfortable with um, in in my journey, and it's a continual journey, right? It's ever evolving. Um, with my first book coming out, you know, um, is fear, and you know, I think that it, in in my culture, and there are many different cultures, right, um, that um, that have this mindset, but um, you know, we're often taught to act with fear. Um, and what I had to learn and it was really, it, you know, in some ways I had to go through the experiences I went through, like working through the Lehman brothers crisis and having worked at the firm and seeing system collapse head on, um, to realize that, um, when it all falls down, there's nothing left unless Mm -hmm. we act and we can choose to act or, or we can live with our inaction. And, um, I, I learned not, Um, to get rid of fear, but to be comfortable with fear and actually master fear. Um, And, you know, and I would say very, very much that um, ditching the map is about getting comfortable um, with fear and getting comfortable with the resistance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in in some ways, I'm one of the things I really practice and embrace is I am, as an Indian, as I'm a Bollywood dancer, and I do a lot of Indian dancing. And, you know, in some ways, a lot of my work um, and dance has helped me move past sort of my business challenges because I've been able to have a place to express myself and express some of the challenges I'm facing in a really different way.
1: All right. So that I want to talk about in a bit more detail because I think that's really fascinating. But um, <clears throat> let's talk about this idea of getting comfortable with fear in more depth. And, and let's talk about it in the context of your story of, of being in a place like Lehman while everything is falling down. I think that fear can become very debilitating um, and cause an insane amount of anxiety when everything is falling down. I, I, I only know this through experiences that I've had. And what I'm learning more and more is that if you are, you can either be held captive by it or you can sort of choose to respond calmly and say, okay, you know what, no matter what happens here, you're not going to die, go to jail or go bankrupt, which are the three possible worst things that could happen in, in any scenario. And yet sometimes I feel like I'm battling my own demons and, and the voice in my head just gets louder as I fight it. So I'm really curious kind of from the context of watching the world around you crumble, uh, you know, bit by bit, uh, how you've Learn to psychologically navigate and manage fear, and get comfortable with it. And what we could take away from that?
2: Yeah, it's um, it's a really um, powerful question, Shrinivas. I think that it's it, what I will always say is that it's an ever-evolving journey, mm-hmm. um, and it continues. Um, but in some ways, you know, I I think that the, the two words that have sort of guided me through that process. Our um, embodiment and alignment. Um, I think that, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, when I was, you know, I was uh, 25 years old on the training floor, when Lehman collapsed, you know, I had, um, you know, clients screaming at me, it was, you know, it was a total disaster. And I, I felt sad, not only, you know, um, for the bank but for the world um, and I saw the repercussions that we saw around the world years you know still years later um, I think that in some ways um, you know when when an experience like that happens um, it's it's a calling it's a wake-up that um, there's no other choice than to act and um, a lot of my life has been um, driven by Um, having to sort of cut through the noise and focus on what I really cared about, you know, whether it was following the business world, um, when, you know, um, really the only option given to me was to become a doctor and, you know, and you know, when I think about managing fear and, and staying, you know, thinking about the long-term, um, Impacts of what really guides me. It's almost like building a muscle, right. um, and mm-hmm. it's you know focusing on embodying what I really want to create, and aligning and creating the structures around me to manifest that. I think those are the biggest things that I've seen in my life that have led me to do that. I mean, one of the one of the also big things that I've seen is I I've I'm not always I've never really had a five year plan, mm-hmm. um, and I've followed a thread much more than a a plan. I've followed guiding questions. Um, and, you know, when I first started research in, on my new book, Get Big Things Done, I actually was studying millennials and how millennials were working in the workplace today. And I thought I was going to write a book on that. And what I realized much, clo- much more closely is that This wasn't about uh, millennials. This was about all of us Mm -hmm. Um, and what was really changing in a world of hyperconnection, not through tech, not, and it wasn't about technology. It was about human intelligence. Mm. Um,
1: So we're going to get, spend the rest of the time talking about all of this, but I want to ask you one more question around the beginning part of this. And I want to talk about dance uh, specifically because I've consistently found that when we give, ourselves a place to express ourselves in a different way. It influences everything else we do in a really powerful way. I mean, I, I've I always said surfing has been one of the biggest influences in my life uh, yeah. and shaping the way I write, shaping the way I create. Uh, and to this day, it, it really is a form of self-expression more than anything else. So I'm really interested in how that has uh, sort of shaped and influenced your journey throughout the entire process of it.
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, it, dancing has, I mean, it's so much embedded in who I am. Um, and I think one of the most profound things is it's made me more curious and more courageous. Um, it's made me ask questions when I go and do a speech um, about how are people moving in the room? How how can they express themselves while I'm speaking and, and invest? I've actually done little Bollywood um, dances, when I've done talks. Um, and it's just completely shifted the energy of the room um, and how people feel connected to me and connected to others in that room. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is it's really made me create much more courageous um, to be able to um, have a practice where I'm enacting and moving and embodying something. Um, you know, so much of Indian tradition and in Bollywood music is about enacting out stories Um, and in many ways I think it's helped me become a better storyteller because of that as well so I've seen profound changes um, in my life through it but you know in some ways I danced as a child And then um, I rediscovered it about five years ago um, in a much more intentional way. Mm. Um, And I think it was because it was my greatest uh, form of self-expression as a child in an Indian family as well.
1: So one last question around this. How do we find what that is for us?
2: Great question. I would say... um, it will find you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I um, I think that um, when we um, engage with the world, when we when we choose to um, to act um, rather than not act, we we it will find us. Um, and in some ways. I'll be honest. You know, going through the Lehman collapse and sort of going through that phase of disillusionment helped me to rediscover dance. Um, but I had to go through a process to find it, and and um, a lot of people don't. A lot of people, you know, keep their hobby, whether it's vi- you know, um, a violin or p- whatever it might be, surfing, whatever it might be. But um, but you'll know when you know, and and all of that starts with engaging.
1: Sometimes I think crisis is what precedes it. I mean, at least for yes. me, that's, yeah, that's when I found it is at a low point in my life is when I discovered surfing and it was what got me through that low point.
2: Yes. Yes. And then and it also, just became
1: part of who I am.
2: Yeah. And also being open to the serendipity mm-hmm. of when it might come along.
1: Yeah. So let's do this. Um, as you've probably heard me say a thousand times, let's shift gears. Uh, So I want to really start talking about this entire concept of connectional intelligence, uh, you know, what it means, you know, how it's defined, what your research has shown you, and, you know, how we can take ideas, people, and resources, things that you've mentioned before, and really apply this entire concept of connectional intelligence to our lives and, and to our careers, which I realize is a big question.
2: Yeah, it's a big question, but I love this question. Um, maybe I'll start with describing what connectional intelligence is that might help. Yeah. So, you know, the the best way to really um, frame the conversation is, you know, we all know in today's world, you know, in the last five to 10 years, you know, for the first time ever in history, we're ubiquitously connected. And that's not, you know, only allowed us to connect through digital, social, mobile, but... In my research, what I've done is I've studied stories of, of leaders, of individuals of all walks of life and of companies um, to look at how they are really using connection in today's world. And what I realize is underneath, um, underneath lots of stories of innovation, of breakthroughs of creativity, um, something else is happening and it's it's not just using cool technologies um, but there's a greater way of how people are using their human intelligence to drive greater curiosity to build courage of people to mobilize resources in new ways and what i really found is this is this is really the rise of this concept that I call Connectional Intelligence. And if you think about history, we've always known of IQ as traditional knowledge. And we've um, recently, in the last 10 to 15 years, heard of emotional intelligence as really this ability to navigate emotions in teams. And Connectional Intelligence is what I believe is the third wave. It's the ability to combine knowledge, ambition, and human capital, forging the connections on a global scale that create unprecedented value and meaning. And, you know, in today's world, many people are overwhelmed um, and overconnected. But what connectional intelligence is, it really asks the question of how can you cut through the noise of, you know, lots of social media and make the meaningful connections, not just to create value, but also to create meaning around what you really care about.
5: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. at greenlight.com slash ACAST.
1: Okay, so I love this because there's so much depth here and I I think you pretty much knew this would be one of my hot buttons probably because you've heard the show. Uh, Let's actually take this into the context of a real world example and I'm just thinking about this as I log into Facebook every morning. I'm thinking, wow, this is a lot of information. How am I ever going to make meaning out of all of this? Um, I mean, how do we cut through all that clutter to get to, you know, connections that are really meaningful, uh, you know, really actually apply this, you know, let's say I'm on Twitter, for example, and obviously, I'm not going to have a conversation with 10,000 followers, I don't even, you know, know who all 10,000 followers are, some of them could have been there through spam. I mean, obviously, there are people that we talk to daily, but um, really, what I'm curious about is, is cutting through the noise of all of this, and really putting it into action in our own lives and, and you know where you've seen examples of this on the internet um, and, and all of that.
2: Absolutely. Um, I'll give you two quick examples, one from Facebook, one from Twitter, since you mentioned those. Um, you know The first one um, I like to talk about, uh, it's one of the stories in my book, um, is about a woman named Jeannie Pieper. And Jeannie um, has a very rare disease called FOB. Um, they're about... Um, Couple hundred people around the world that have it, and um, she, you know, spent a lot of her life, um, you know, going to doctors trying to diagnose the illness. As you, as you might know, rare diseases are very hard to detect, especially if you're in smaller cities. Um, and with the rise of connection, one of the things that Jeannie did is she uh, created the first Facebook group for people with FOB and began to connect. Um, with hundreds of others with her illness around the world, whether it was in um, Malaysia to South Africa and what began to happen is because Jeannie really focused on an issue that she really cared about, she created a knowledge network through Facebook and then started a newsletter um, for those that had the illness, but also for those that cared about the issue. And what began to happen is because the patients with, the rare, with this rare disease were connecting, they began to understand symptoms better than doctors could. They learned um, certain things that doctors didn't know, and they began to teach doctors more about understanding the illness and because they were also connected they for the first time ever began to fund more medical research at the university of pennsylvania which is very hard to do for rare diseases um, throughout the world because they are so rare so really by focusing one on an issue that she really cared about um, and finding those like-minded people that both cared about the issue, but then realized a way that they could create value for each other and for other communities Mm -hmm. through it became a powerful form of connectional intelligence. Um, Another quick example I'll give from Twitter um, is the story of Gamal Sadiq. Um, Actually, Gamal is um, an entrepreneur in Cairo, and one of the things that he um, he noticed um, in Cairo is that there's you know as we all know there's awful traffic and the way that people navigated and drove around the city was really by um, listening to the radio which was often not not well organized a lot of the data wasn't coming through um, and people would miss you know, school, miss major um, major issues because of because of traffic. And so what he did um, is he started to, he created a, a Twitter hashtag called Cairo Traffic, and he started to engage citizens around the city to begin to share and take pictures of, you know, there's a delay on this road or take another road. And then what he began to do is he collected and aggregated all the hashtag data that he was finding and created an app called Baolac, um, that allowed anyone to find a much more real-time, open-source way of uh, you know, knowing which routes to take um, to to get somewhere faster. Um, but later, what happened is through this, by collecting the data, now Bailack, um is actually a- embedding and has built a community of active citizens that are now using this to begin to see where government infrastructure should really be embedded and beginning to put pressure also on the government to think more critically about this. So what began is just a way of, I want to get somewhere faster. Um, Using the internet has created immense value for the city of Cairo, and I think is is a really important model that will be replicated around the world.
1: Hmm. So how do you balance all of that with this sort of endless self-promotion that goes on? Because, I mean, obviously we have to promote our stuff to some degree. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not just community dependent. I mean, somebody has to step up and lead. So I guess really the question becomes one of leadership for me. Uh, mm-hmm. so for example, let's say I am wanting to put these concepts of connectional intelligence to our community here at the unmistakable creative. How might we do that in a meaningful way? Yeah,
2: it's a great question. Um, you know, and a lot of that stems from, um, the way the way that I think about that question stems from so much of the way I think about community organizing and building communities. And it really starts with my definition of leadership. And uh, the way that I define leadership is that it's enabling others to achieve a shared purpose in the face of uncertainty. And so, so much about building a community or building a tribe or you know, promoting an idea, I believe, is about creating the opt-in mechanisms for other people to act. Um, so it's not about pushing um, more content. And I think sometimes that's important. It's great to have a newsletter. It's great to share information. But really where uh, communities and impact forms is when you give people access to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why patients with FOB are so engaged in this community, teaching doctors. That that's why I believe that citizens in Cairo are so engaged with this mobile app. Um, and that's why surfers are excited to use the smart fin sensor. You'll have to try it, us when you're out there mm-hmm. um, on the waves, um, to, you know, to help uh, collect data um, that will help our environment. So I, you know, I think the first step is creating that opt-in mechanism and asking how might others be part of what I'm doing and be part of the solution more than anything else.
1: So I guess the question for me becomes, how do we figure out what that opt-in mechanism is?
2: I would say, you know, some of it is test and learn. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I've seen that's been really powerful here is to often... um, Focus on opt-in mechanisms that are not the traditional ones. Um, Look at new mediums. Um, So, you know, if you care about building a tribe around the topic of um, private equity in uh, Bangladesh, um, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of times there might be big conferences to go to around the world, but maybe there's a medium through YouTube um, that could build a community and have people be be involved or a LinkedIn group or a Reddit chat. And, and I've often found that when you create new outlets or use new mediums, it's almost one of the most interesting ways um, of of promoting and also engaging people. One of the examples of this I talk about in my book is um, a woman named Michelle Fan. Michelle is now known as a a YouTube star, but, um, you know, just a few years ago, she, on her laptop, um, you know, while going to community college, um, started making makeup tutorial videos on her laptop just as a hobby, because she really cared about makeup and fashion and beauty. Um, And over time, she just started to share this with her community and then began to listen back to her community that began to follow around things that they really cared about, topics that they wanted to learn about. Um, And today she has over a million subscribers. She has you know, contracts with L'Oreal and Google. Um, and she's flipping the mindset of the cosmetics industry that are now going to women like Michelle instead of famous celebrities like Rihanna, um, to market their products. Um, but that's not something Michelle started with. It really Mm. started by listening, by giving and listening to her community, um, and using a new medium like YouTube to Mm. do that.
1: Well, I think you brought up a really interesting point with, uh, the idea that that's not what she started with. And uh, I only know this because I think I've I've been in that position. And I think any of us who has attempted to start a project on the internet and seen it fail or or not seen it have the success that we want it to has experienced that when we we see somebody who has started something cool and you hear this story of, oh, this person became an overnight sensation via something that they did. And so we assume that, okay, well, if I go and do that, I'm going to have fame, I'm going to have celebrity. And I think that it's uh it's kind of a messy business because you can get really caught up in the validation that comes from all of it and i think mm-hmm. that if you start with that intention uh it just it, it'll it'll show in the work it'll come right through mm-hmm. the work no matter how much you try to hide it
2: yeah absolutely um and it's really starting with what do you know that could help others mm-hmm. you know and and i've seen you know it's when you really shift um, the the question from, you know, how do I get people to care about me to what do I have? What uh, what ideas, what resources, um, what communities am I connected to that could help others? It completely shifts the paradigm. And I think it's the greatest form um, that humans have for connectional intelligence.
1: Hmm. So one thing you said earlier was this idea of using knowledge, ambition and human capital. And I want to uh, dig deeper into that um, and maybe look at it in the context of something more practical. Let's say that, you know, in our case, we have an archive of 500 interviews, which in this case happens to be knowledge. Uh, Um, how do we connect that to ambition and human capital and, and do something meaningful with it? Uh, if we, if we were to think of something we might want to do, I'm just kind of curious where you might lead us, you know, if we go down that path.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, I might, You know, as I think about that, there's sort of five key questions I always ask related to uh, how to use connectional intelligence um, related to a specific goal. And, you know, the first one is if I were to think about that question, um, you know, the first one I would ask is. You know how you know how could we use all of the podcast all the, all of the content that you created um, in different mediums to reach new communities mm-hmm. that may not be listening through this medium or may not um, have access in this way um, whether it's through um, you know whether it's through you know a different mobile form or through a way where they um, can respond to um, to the podcast and dialogue in some way, um, another question would really be around um, and that's really that gets to the human capital piece of looking at what are the different types of communities that that could gain value from this. And you know, I know we were just talking before that the university community has has really um, been very interested in, in the knowledge that you built. Um, you know, when we think about the topic of ambition, it's really at the deepest root around passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way that I would describe this is is, a, is to think about the question of how might, you know, we take all of the data and knowledge that you've collected um, and combine it to create a new concept or a new way of thinking or um, a surprising different result. Um, and, you know, you don't always know as, as you know, this, you don't always know the answer until you actually step into it. Um, that's so much part of the creativity process, but I'll give you an example, um, that I think might help. Um, one, um, well-known architect in Zimbabwe, um, is named Mick Pierce. And one of the tasks he had to do was to build, um, a mall, the architecture for a mall, um, that um, would not be air conditioned and had to figure out a way to sort of keep it cool and one of the things he did in you know in his knowledge category is he had sort of a fasc- fascination with bugs and particularly termites and he had studied termite mounds and how you know just as a quirky habit um, and how termites actually create these mounds where there's a cooling effect because they're very long and they're made in deserts and what he did is he actually took that concept and he created this a similar cool cooling system in the in the mall. Um, and now the mall saves two million dollars um, every year because of the cooling system he built, which is modeled off of Termite Mound. And that might sound, you know, kind of zany, but it, you know, if we take that perspective, we could also bring it back here. Um, you know, there's so much knowledge that you may have and, you know, you, you might not know how it could be used, um, how it could be opened up. What um, bits and pieces could be used in different forms for different, um, for different groups? And the last thing is, you know, what courageous conversations could be had out of it with communities that don't necessarily agree with everything in, in the content and um, that may actually um, create bridges in a way that um, could be really powerful.
1: So I really love this because, I mean, we're talking, it it almost brings us full circle to that whole idea of convergence, Um, you know, when we're looking at all these different things and how the dots Mm -hmm. connected. I mean, I would have never predicted in a million years that our dots would connect into what they have today and what we've created. (laughs) Um, Literally just started with, you know, a question and curiosity about what would happen if we just recorded an mp3 conversation and threw it up on a website uh, with some notes, which was six years ago.
2: Yeah. 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 It's it's um, and I think you know at the at the deepest level it's the the base of uh, creativity right it, it often starts with that initial spark um, and you you don't actually know where it will go um, but what I think is really different in today's world and that's you know with my book get big things done what I'm really trying to show is that we're at a whole other level now mm-hmm. you know the stakes are different in a connected world it's not about it's, it's not about how you're connected anymore. You can, you can access people. I mean, you can find ways to get Bill Gates' email address. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. Um, but in today's world, in, it's not about having more connections. And it's not about using more technologies. It's about how you really leverage, you know, our greatest human spirit and how we tap into and leverage our human assets, um, to solve the problems we need in today's world. And that, that I think, is really the most foundational piece of connectional intelligence. What I think is the, is the frontier um, that the leaders uh, that will thrive will have in today's world.
1: So this actually brings up a question for me as, as I was sort of thinking about you describing this, and we're getting close to, to the end here. But is connectional intelligence something that you think certain people are just naturally born with and... You know, if so, what is it about those people that that stands out? And then, of course, if it's not, how is it something that can be cultivated?
2: It's a great question. Um, and before I answer that directly, the one thing I'll, I will say, um, because I think it's important and ties into the question, is that, you know, this point in history makes connectional intelligence more profound than ever before, but one thing I will say is connectional intelligence isn't new. Um, so the great leaders of our time, from Mahatma Gandhi to Ben Franklin, to Marie Curie, I think all had very high connectional intelligence. Um, so, so what I think is unique now is that at this point in time, I think anyone can really cultivate and develop their connectional intelligence. Um, and so I don't think that um, actually you're either born with connectional intelligence or not. Um, I think it can be cultivated and developed. And I think it manifests in three different ways. And I talk about this, there are sort of three different ways that I've, um, that I've seen, uh, people have different types of connectional intelligence. The first type that I think people have, are there the thinkers? Um, so these are people that, um, are people that, you know, know how to combine lots of different ideas together. They generate great groundbreaking ideas. They're very, uh, very curious people, very high at combining lots of ideas. Um, the second type that I've seen are people that are enablers. Enablers are the connect, uh, the connectionally intelligent that create the structures and forces to get big things done. They're the um, they're the um, Ben Thompson who realized that the surfer community and the uh, the researcher community should be connected, um, and sort of forge that connection through communities. Um, and the third type of connectional intelligence I've seen is the what I call the connection executors. These are the people that mobilize um, all the resources to get it done. They're, you know, they're often the ones that are often the most tech savvy. So this is Gamal Sadiq who, you know, was on his laptop and able to literally track all the hashtags for Cairo traffic and build a database that people were using real time. Um, And so what I found is that, you know, this, you know, they're, they're, There may be people that have certain aptitudes for different types of connectional intelligence, whether uh, being more curious thinkers, more community-based enablers, or more get-it-done connection executors. Um, But it really can be developed um, and cultivated. I have a quiz um, that actually will help people assess their own connectional intelligence in the book. But most importantly is that it can be developed, but also a big part of connectional intelligence is not about just developing it all yourself. Um, It's about finding out who you need to partner with, and how you partner with the right people to get big things done. Um, So, if you are, you know, you're not a um, a big networker, a connector, and out there, maybe you're a thinker, and that is perfectly fine. And one of the most important things for thinkers is to partner with the enablers and the connection executors to to help take the ideas into action.
1: Hmm. So I. One last question around this, um, which kind of, I think really brings us full circle is really being able to connect. And I've, I've watched certain people that seem to have a really amazing capacity for basically enrolling people in, in, you know, what they're working on people like my friend, Jason Gaynard, who pulls off an event like mastermind talks, um, and others like clay Haybear, who is, is just this brilliant connector of people and knowing how to add value and ask for what you want without sort of coming across um, sleazy or desperate, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's, you know, in some ways, you know, my mindset is so much of an abundance mindset. So it's, um, I think that, there is, um, there's sort of two ways to, to answer this question, I think. Um, I think one is, is when you're, um, when you're asking people for something, um, and I'll speak for myself, when I ask people for something, I don't ask for favors. I ask people to be part of my mission and enlist them to be part of a mission. So, um, you know, that shift from thinking that I was asking people for a favor Mm -hmm. um, to asking people to be part of something that um, I really care about. And I hope they do too um, completely changes how, how we asked and how we connect with people um, whether for introductions or for a project. Um, And, you know, so I think that's one piece of it. And the other piece is, you know, there will always be some rejection or, um, different views about this, and that's okay too. You know, it's a it's a process of finding a tribe, a community of supporters, and you know, having worked in so many different fields, having been a banker, having been a um, a women's activist, you know, now working um, as the CEO of Potential I do consulting for executives around connectional intelligence. You know, I've worked in so many different fields. There are a lot of people that don't agree with what I'm doing now, or you know, may think very differently um, about these ideas, but that's okay too. Um, so it's getting comfortable with that. There'll be different views, but most importantly, um, to ask not for favors, but, um, for investing in a mission.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that makes a perfect way to sum up our conversation. Uh, I know you said you had uh, a way, uh, for people to actually get an assessment of their uh, own connectional intelligence. So you want to tell them about that really quick? And then I'll yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. I have a you know special gift, um, with Uh, the book release of Get Big Things Done, one of the things I'm offering is access to a connectional intelligence quiz to help you assess your own connectional intelligence and a manager guide that you can use to run a connectional intelligence process with your team. Um, So if you text 66866, and just um, with the word Erica, E-R-I-C-A, I'll, um, I'll send you the free gift um, when you type in your email. So look forward to it. And thanks so much again.
1: Yeah, awesome. So one last question, which you've probably heard me ask a thousand times uh, if you've been listening to the show. What is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: Their ability to make new connections that haven't existed before.
1: Well, Erica, this has been absolutely fascinating and fabulous. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your story and your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative.
2: Thank you so much again, Srinivas. I think you are just the ultimate um, example of connectional intelligence. So I'm thrilled to be here with you today.
1: Awesome. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?
0: Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The 4 Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com 4keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com 4keys and download your free copy.